Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our first uh, public um, colloquium of the, of the spring semester. Um, it's my pleasure to be uh, introducing Matthew, who is a, Matthew Berland, who's a visiting scholar at our lab, and um, he's, he's going to forgive me for reading your no, I just memorized them, but oh, that's extremely but hurtful. Associate professor of design and formal creative education in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at UW Madison, um, and he's with us this whole year as a visiting scholar. Um, and he directs the UW Games program at the Complex Play Lab, um, and a number of other projects that you can see on the website. Um, I think there's an interesting a long uh, link to Matthew in our own history in CMS. Uh, in the very early days of the founding of CMS, um, Kurt Squire, who was then a graduate student at UW, actually spent his uh, thesis, did his thesis work out here in Boston, and worked with Eric and Henry Jenkins to start the Education Arcade. And then Kurt went back to UW and uh, started the games program, which has been situated inside the School of Ed there. Um, and I think there's something meaningful about that, and similarly meaningful that in the last few years, all, much of the educational work at MIT has come back into CMS. Um, I think it tells us something about an evolving sense that where we've traditionally said education and traditionally thought about schools, we really need to be thinking more broadly about learning and learning as much outside of school as in school. And that, in fact, our engagement with media um, has a lot to do with our desire to be uh, lifelong learners. Um, a while ago, Ralph Costa wrote a book which argued, who are arguing that basically the reason we play any game is to learn. Um, the book, The Theory of Fun, if you haven't read it. Um, but I think maybe it's possible that all of our engagement with media says something about our need to learn. Um, and so I think it's appropriate that we start talking about the intersections of these. But I'm gonna, Matthew will do it much better than I will, so I will turn the floor over to him. Oh, thanks. Well, thanks so much. That's very, uh, very kind. So yeah, I'm. I'm um, that's a, That was a very. Uh, I really appreciate that intro. Um, I hope I. I hope I get there. <laughs> and, and I, so let me say a couple things. Uh, I am. In, that was not a. Not a, not false. I am Matthew Berland. I'm an associate professor at uh, UW. I run the game lab. I'm a member of Design and Formal Creative Education. I'm in computer science. Uh, my home department's in educational research, and I'm also in computer science and. Uh, Information Studies and Educational Psychology, something else, STS. Um, and I think I'm just going to have to keep denying this every few minutes, so apologies. Um, uh, but one thing I want to say before I go much further is I would love, I hate the one-sided uh, lectures. I find them boring personally, even when the person's entertaining, because I feel like I'm not really getting anywhere personally. So I would love it if you stop me and interrupt me and argue with me as I go. And if I don't make it through the slides, who, who cares, right? Like you didn't come here to get through all the content in my slides. Um, the, the important part is that we feel like we've gotten somewhere as a, as a group. So if you're like, no, say that to me. And then we'll argue. For, it'll be fun. I won't be mean about it. I, I'll try not to be. Um, and if I am, you can yell me down. Uh, so yeah, I'm a visiting scholar here uh, in CMS in the Step Lab uh, this year. Um, also, feel free to slow me down. I talk quickly and interrupt. But I'm going to be talking about creative, what I call creative agency, which is making, learning, playing, and understanding computational content together. The question is like, why would we want to learn 
uh, stuff? What's the value of, of learning? In this case, I'm going to talk about computational content. And I'm going to define these things like what is creative agency, what is making, learning, playing, understanding. I'll go, I'll go through all these in a second. But one of the other things I want to say is that although I'm like talking, like the PI of projects and stuff, I, I didn't do the work. Like I did some of it, but like there's no question Vishesh is sit, sitting there, sitting there. Hi, Vishesh. Did like more of this than me. So I, I just am the one talking. So this is just some of the various people who did the work that's um, in this. And I'd be happy to name people and, 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 and call people out and say what they specifically did. It's not maybe not enough to just show their faces, but um, I wanted to give you the sense that there's a bunch of projects. I'm going to show a bunch of games. I'm going to show a bunch of things that I work on. Um, and I didn't like do that. I did some of it. Um, and then, so then there's also all these co-PIs. Some of you may recognize some of these people. We were just talking about Betsy Asalo, who I'm co-PIs with on a, a few different projects. Some of these people have been at MIT variously, and some of them haven't. Um, Jeremy graduated uh, from here in uh, 1980. Yeah, 1983 with Gene Bamberger as his undergraduate advisor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I believe that's right. Um, so that said, that's, I feel like that was a long caveat. Here, here's the fundamental question I want to I ask, right? Like, this is the, a big question in my work, which is like, we believe, if we believe that like learning and education is a good thing, and I'm just going to put that out, like, I, I think that this is good, right? It's one of those sort of unalloyed goods to, to teach people, especially to like express themselves, to teach people the things that they want to know, to connect with people then I think we have to believe in that in, a, in the context of collaboration, in the context of social spaces, in the context of other people. Right? The intersubjectivity is real. It's not about, did you do really well on this test? Who, who cares? The question is, are you, allowed to situ or are you able to situate this work? So how can we use social spaces, collaboration, and making, what I'm calling complex play, to help build, kids build creative agency through computational literacy? But that's like a bunch of keywords. Sounds like buzzwords. It doesn't really mean much yet. So I'm going to tackle the target first. Because for me, the target is, is actually sort of like the tail wags the dog. Like, what am I talking about? What do I actually care about people learning? In this case, I, I, I use the term computational literacy, which is something I've written about. And I use it after Andy DeSessa, also someone who's passed through these, through these halls, um, retired recently from Berkeley. And he says, he thinks about literacy sort of similar to print literacy. And he breaks it up into, into three parts, um, just three lenses, right? This doesn't mean that they break up cleanly. Um, there's the cognitive, the material, and the social. And what I mean by the cognitive is, is, the, is can we use computer science, say, again, I'm partially a computer scientist, can we use computer science? to understand what's going on around us. Maybe problem solving, that's fine. Problem solving is like one part of life. But also all sorts of other things. Is, is computer science, can it be like a handle we could use to understand novels? Can it be a handle we can use to understand the beauty of a flower? Right? Is it just something we can think through? Is it a, is it a, is a pair of glasses we can use to think about the world? And is that a good thing? Right? That's a separate question. So that's the cognitive aspect. The material is literally being able to create with it, right? Be, having the skills for it. So, Programming is the most typical way that we talk about this. Um, right? That's only one part of it. 
Because most important, potentially, is the social aspect, which is the ability to discuss it, to describe it, but more importantly, to understand why and where and how it's valuable. Not just the ethics of the situation, which is very important, but also like how you literally interact uh, and create shared meaning with other people around, uh, 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 say, computer science or computation, right? and what that means and how to contextualize it. So that's how we break up broadly computer science. And I think that these things sort of can can be broken down, and maybe they, they all sort of overlap, and maybe it's a pretty Venn diagram, but I actually think it looks like way more like this, where it's sort of a apology, I don't know anything about physics, but this, this is sort of like a field, right? Where sometimes it flows this way, and sometimes it flows that way. Sometimes you're literally just like memorizing keywords. And that doesn't mean you have to be like, what does this mean for the future of society every time you try and memorize a keyword in C++. Um, uh, but uh, but is, look, you have to sort of live in this space where you can sort of bounce around and think think through it. And that's what we mean by computational, that's what I mean by computational literacy. This is similar to like print literacy in the sense that, you know, maybe you can just write, but you don't know what you would need to write or what would be value to write or how you could express yourself through writing, but you're a very good technical writer. Um, maybe you just don't have the skills of writing, but you know what you would want to write. This often happens when you're learning a new language. You're like, I want to express myself, but I don't have the material components to express myself in French. This is true for me. Um, or maybe it's understanding what would be, uh, uh, how to express myself through, say, uh, uh, the language of uh, Melville or the language of uh, wh whoever, right? So um, thinking about the literacy as a lens. So then what do I mean? So now we've got a target. Does this feel to people? People feel like this is a reasonable construct. Makes No, this seems terrible. If everybody agrees, then that I've done nothing. No? We're all just like, absolutely, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Oh, God, it's terrible. <laughs> we want to know more. Oh. Um, all right, so I'm very disappointed in you right now. There's been no yelling. Um, uh, so creative agency is, is what I'm talking about with this, is the ability, skills, resources, and support needed to act, right? And so for this, I'm taking um, uh, more of Betsy's work. I work extensively with Betsy and find her to be incredible. Um, but also Jim and, and, and Jim G and, and Ian Bogost and people like this. So thinking about in terms of can I create something with computation Sure, that's going to convince my friends um, or, or express myself. Am I going to be able to use computation? And what's specific about computation? So one thing that's specific about computation, Ian argues, uh, Bogost, um, is that it enables this, this different kind of expression right? that you can't get in a book. And books offer other features. But computation offers this idea of the procedural rhetoric, where you can get someone, someone has to sort of work with you through an argument, work with you through a problem, due to the nature of computation and interactive media, right? Very, very CMS. Uh, I'm sure many people, people here broadly know Ian Bogost. Some days. OK. Um, so procedural rhetoric, can I create something that, that enables me uh, uh, to make these arguments? And then thinking about code-powered identity and thinking about the, not just the social context in terms of the pure intersectivity of what you're trying to express with c computer science, but also where it exists in the, the space of, of race and, and gender and, and all of the sort of class and all of the factors that we think about in, in America that, ha have, that are, are so salient, right? 
Because a lot of the issues of agency in America is we afford agency to people who already have agency. And this is actually one of the things that school does really well, and it's a really bad thing to do, right? Is that we give more agency, the more ability to act, more ability to express yourself to those people who need it, who already have that ability. And so how can we think about the target of creative agency as in affording people who may not have those abilities um, the ability to express or the ability to see how they might want to or not want to express um, using computation and what procedural rhetoric might be able to do, with them, do for them. So I use these, these constructs in my work to understand mechanisms of social computational thinking of learning, to develop tools for places like classrooms and museums and games that people play, um, structure and support spaces in which people learn, um, and, and develop ways to understand if things have gone right. Because oftentimes, uh, we don't know if we're doing the right thing. Or we think we have good theoretical reason to think that we've done the right thing, but we don't have a good sense of whether it's worked or not. Um, and so, you know, these, these answer, these, these questions that we see over and over again, which is that people are taught with computers, or taught computational content, taught computer science, but they can't connect it to their needs. Right now, so you, I'm going to talk about this in a second, but every student in New York City um, public schools is getting computer science now. But many of the teachers don't have a background in computer science, nor should they, right? Like, we shouldn't ask every English teacher in the system to know what computer, how computer science works. But that's sort of what's happening to some extent. Um, and as you might suspect, if you're a teacher and you don't have any background understanding what the value of computer science might be, you would not necessarily be able to connect that to, to kids' interests, right? And the students also can't. Um, but even more so, the social structures really exist to support uh, people who don't already know the value um, of learning the content. And it goes without saying that it, across all of education, the tools and curricula are, are typically structured with extremely naive conceptions uh, of how people, how people think and learn. So we have like a thousand projects. This is actually even just a partial list. Um, I apologize if Vishesh is looking up here. He probably sees like two or three of his own projects that are not on this list. I'm sorry. Um, uh, we have a big list of ways that we've tried to, I feel like I'm going to deny this time. Um, Allow? All right. So um, uh, deal with this. So does this question now make sense? No. Yes? Maybe. So how do we use social spaces, collaboration, and making to help students build creative? Well, do we understand why we'd want to help them build creative agency? We understand what computational literacy is. Do all the keywords sort of have they resolved? Bertrand, what are we thinking? You're 100%. What's that? I want to see some examples. OK, good, perfect. So some examples. Oh, yeah, I've been, I've been you know, So now this is literally my doctoral student, Vishesh, in the back. This is Vishesh Kumar, um, senior doc student uh, here with me here in, in Boston. Um, I use the term complex play because I think that one of the best ways that we do this is through games. I think games offer uh, a, a really unique uh, a set of features. One is, a lot of times when you have people create things in K-12 experiences, um, they don't create them for other people. So I haven't really talked about constructionism too much. Ooh, I'm going to jump back. Um, but a lot of this is built on these ideas of constructionism. In fact, 
jumping back even more, I have a book coming out uh, any, any day um, uh, called Constructions in Context. Uh, Scott, I believe, is in the book. Um, Vishesh, I... Uh, the, right, there are several, there are several co-authors, uh, several co-editors in this book. Um, uh, Yasmin Kafai and Nathan Holber are my two other co-editors. Um, so construction is the idea that you learn by, by um, building uh, uh, with the thing you want to learn for other people. But the problem is that often when you're building for other people, they don't really want to use the thing you're building because you've made a crappy version because you're learning. Right? I mean, that makes sense. That you don't really use a lot of things that someone else would build for you in CS1. I'd be very surprised if you did, actually, right? That doesn't seem like that would track very well. Um, but when you make games for friends, you can both be expressive in an artistic sense, and your friends will play those games. And if you've built social structures in educational experiences, you can actually get people to legitimately engage with your work, which is true in, in uh, intro to creative writing, and it's true in intro to computer science, um, uh, but it's, it's not true everywhere. Um, and so part of the question is, how can we enable this stuff through games, and how does play enable uh, this stuff? So we've, this particular one was about focusing on, this is called OzTalk. It, it was up uh, for a long time at the New York Hall of Science. It's a museum exhibit in which kids play together um, uh, in, they build like short programs with these blocks um, and that looks in order to uh, uh, take photographs of uh, fantastical fish, right? And so everybody has their own little space and they write, this is a very simple program um, using this, these electronic components um, and they flash variously and then draw in various fish. And as you might suspect, if you work across boundaries, if you work with other people, there are more complex fish that you can that you can gather and you can learn from the other people at the table how best, how best to play. Um, so this is what it looks like on the screen, but actually what it looks like is more like this, right? This is an authentic uh, a shot uh, from the game. And you can see here, like there's all these different things we could focus in on. It's the way that people are working across age, that they're working to construct stuff together, that they're working to communicate across uh, languages. And that's actually important. Um, they tell us uh, in the brochure for Queens, they say it's the most diverse municipality in the history of humankind. Toronto also says the same thing. I'll let them duke that out. Um, but uh, uh, the, when we built the exhibit, they said, well, it can't have English in it. And we were like, OK. And they're like, well, we have a plurality of English speakers, but not a majority um, who come in for school groups. So we'd prefer if it didn't really have language um, too much. We were like, cool, because it's a project about communication. And they're like, great, research. Um, and, uh, and so what, what the project was about was about learning to communicate these ideas um, across languages, across uh, uh, social groups, um, across ages, across, across spaces, and from sort of far away and up close. So one of the things we did is we took data of what everybody did in the room, everybody, what everybody was saying, where they were in the room, what was happening on the table. And it looks a little like this and variously, and this was a dashboard we came up with <laughs> as well. I think Vishesh, nope, this was not you, I apologize. Um, giving him too much credit. Um, the, uh, that has like what's going on on the, the screen, that was uh, done by Adam Meckley, who's, who's now uh, at Unity, and the transcript, and then the, the, uh, the codes over time of what's happening on the table, and uh, various things like this. And, 
one thing we found, we found a bunch of things. This didn't really give us any insights offhand. Um, we started, what's that? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, please. Uh, who's using that dashboard? Oh, just the researchers. Only, uh, yeah, only us at the moment. So we started saying like, okay, well, what's happening on the table? And we found, and this is gonna seem really obvious, but the more people interacted, and the more that they were working across spaces and um, acting across spaces and see, being at the table when other people were at the table, the more they were able to do. And so we, this is a paper that uh, came out or has been resubmitted. I think the journal article is resubmitted, but it's, it, the conference paper's come out a couple times in a couple different ways, was the more people are working together, the more that they all individually get done. The more complex individual circuits, the more different kinds of programs they write, the more, the, the more complicated their programs are, which is like a really basic finding in a sense, but it also is the thing that's the opposite of what people typically do when they teach people technical skills, which is break them up and send, and send them off to different parts and say, don't cheat, don't copy. And we're like, no, 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 the whole, everybody does better individually when everybody is looking at each other's work. Again, Educational researchers are like, duh, and computer scientists are like, never. So <laughs> this is one of those nice little findings. But one thing we did find from the dashboard in part, or at least from some graphs that sort of stemmed out of the dashboard, was that we had this problem where we were, going, we were sort of bubbling along where the programs were about this good for a long time, right? And then occasionally, for hours at a time, it would go like this, very steady. And then, then it would come back up here again. So, but like really, does anyone have any guesses as to why that would happen? Like, why, why would we be like this for weeks and then for like three hour chunks, it would be, the, all programs would be identical and very dumb. The control against control for, you know, density of users? That could be it. That's, that's actually a really good theory, yeah. Uh, somehow, uh, more like a classroom. Oh yeah, when the classrooms come in, yeah, it could be. That's yeah. I like these are good guesses. These are good guesses. I I would tell you the right answer, but actually I'm more interested in all the possible wrong answers. Um, but I'll get to the right answer. Anyone else have any? Ooh, that's actually the right answer. Unfortunately, um, no. That's a good guess, but no, actually, grown-ups and kids working together, they do great. Unless the kids start. Oh yeah, the grown-ups are bad at stuff, but they don't play with it for very long. Um, what, what's that? Like a dominant kid comes in. Ooh, that's also a good guess. But the problem with the dominant kid theory is that the dominant kid will often stick around for a really long time and end up making a really complicated circuit or a really complicated program. And so we didn't quite see that path pathway with that, although we can, we'll talk about that in a second. So the actual answer is that these lovely, wonderful, kind, delightful human beings, and I'm not saying this in a, in a facetious way at all, these are wonderful humans who were explainers, who were the docents of the museum, would come in and people would come and they'd be like, oh, you go like this. And people would be like, thank you, and walk away. Right, for like hours, which must have been very boring for the explainers, but they would just be like, as soon as anyone was even vaguely frustrated, they would come and connect the circuits and then the people would be like, thank you so much, and then they would walk away. Because you're an explainer, you're in the room, and in a museum, you typically you don't get to the point where you're like, the hell is going on here? What? Why is they don't let you do that, right? They come up to you and they're like, "Hey, can I help?" Oh yeah, you just you put them together, you just link them up, and then they're linked up, and then you walk away because they've shown you what to do. 
So it wasn't because they were bad, it was because they were being very kind and thoughtful. And so we were like, okay, well, what are we gonna do about this? Because we don't wanna like, be like, you're bad, do you've done wrong, we wanna help them. So we built this uh, real-time support, live PD, we'll call it. Um, this is a, uh, um, this one was you. Okay, good, all right. You keep giving him credit until he nods. Um, so we built this live support. So on the back end, it has, has some sort of machine learning, whatnot. Uh, uh, in this case, it's, there's some models of what's going on and what would be the right prompt to give depending on what's happening on the table. Um, but for the most part, the thing is the prompts are all like reasonably open-ended questions that a teacher might ask, like, hey, what's going on here? Hey, just like, why do you think you would be seeing only green fish? Or like, well, why don't you tell me what you think the person at the other part of the table is doing, right? And when you're asking, when you're giving them these prompts and this thing that, that's like ticking along and it looks very official, this is like cheating, right? We're all agreed that this is educational research cheating, but it worked. Um, then it turns out they make much more complicated things and they stay around longer and they think really deeply and we're giving them this live PD where the live PD is teaching them to ask deeper questions to engage with the students. And we're doing it by having this model on the back end, which suggests things that are vaguely reasonable, right? Now, this isn't obviously, these aren't the best things that an expert teacher would possibly act, ask, but these are interesting things that would prompt uh, further work. And when we have this on the board, we found that the quality of the work went up because now they're working more deeply, right? So now we were bubbling around like this, and then for a while we were like going like this for a few hours, and now that's not happening, and in fact it's getting better because now we're engaging with people to talk to other people and think through the. So this is just one of the ways that we used that. So, okay, we talked about building computational things. We talked about a uh, little bit about how learning to communicate with uh, the thing across the table hmm. uh, b uh, uh, was meaningful. And, and just a few different things we found out of this project was, one, visibility was paramount. Being able to see and interact with the sort of concepts of what other people were doing was really key to thinking deeply about the work. That the real-time intelligence supports could, could, could work really well, that, the, um, that having this sort of creative collaborative game in the museum de sort of desettled the space and created spaces for people to communicate around the technical work, even if it wasn't in a, a single spoken language, even if it was gestural and, and collaborative. Um, and that uh, actually people, when people had various kinds of goals, when they sort of diversion collaboration is, is the term we use, um, uh, uh, that it, this turned out to be a really powerful tool for enabling people to find their own way in the museum, in the museum space. So now for something totally uh, different. So I mentioned that, um, uh, that we're working in New York, they're doing uh, computer sciences uh, in, now in K through 12, you have it every year um, if you're in a, a New York City public school. And so we talked to them and they were like, we don't really know how to help teachers understand what counts as CS and we don't have a great way to assess CS understanding, right? So they have tests, teachers can give tests. Well, that doesn't tell you much about what people understand about computer science, it just tells you how much they've studied for a test. And so they were like, well, you do research in this, and we were like, kind of. Um, and uh, so we came up with an open, creative, playful, formative assessment to help teachers understand what their students are, are, are sort of grokking rather than try and come up with a test that works across computer science classes. We wanted to sort of think about what's at the core. Where we also wanted it to not quite look like computer science, not because we didn't care, 
But remember, this is an assessment game, and we wanted people to connect with the ideas and connect with the material and have it reflect stuff that they were interested in. So we went and we talked to kids in New York, and it turns out pretty much everybody was interested in the music industry in New York. This is a big thing. Um, and so in this game, you're Jay-Z. You can play this game. It's play.beatsempire.org, and I'll put that URL up if you want later. Um, so in Beats Empire, you are Jay-Z, basically. You run uh, a music label. Um, and there's like a million pathways through the game, right? You can expand the kinds of data you collect. You can um, predict trends of what's, what's happening and create sort of queries about uh, various ways of looking at the data. Um, you can uh, level up your, your characters. And part of what we're looking for is your ability to use, in this case, the eighth grade computer science is mostly data science. Um, and so we're looking for ways to try and understand how someone, if they were motivated within the game, if they were motivated naturally, um, again, not a learning game, an assessment game, how would they be able to think through these problems? What do they really understand about um, what they're doing with data science? In some cases, we find like real bummers like, oh, gosh, your eighth graders don't know how to read a bar graph. So we can't really get too far into the computer science of it because that's just not, it's not happening. Um, in other cases, we are. Um, seeing that the, we hit a ceiling effect, right? That, that we, people were able to sort of play the game. We heard when we first put it in that it looked a lot like the Kim Kardashian game, right? This is one thing we, we heard a bunch of times, right? So that there were groups of kids there who were like, well, I played this game a thousand times. This is easy for me. I'll just like, you just like say where the thing is going and you like make a prediction, you like big bonus and it's fine. You're like, yeah, Kim Kardashian game. It's like the same thing. So, um, uh, so anyway, so this is, yeah, this is called Beats Empire. And the, the, I think, again, the, the fundamental question is like, you're creating these things. You're creating this space. Um, it's also an assessment. Um, but it's a creative assessment where you're, you actually can create music. It's re sort of remixed from the various choices that you make. Um, you can actually play with your identity as a, a music mogul. Um, and you can do it in a way that expresses computer science understanding. Um, in ways that the teacher can then step back and be like, okay, my, my students understand these factors and, and these factors. And thinking about if we motivate that computer science is about this sort of creative ways to look at data, if it's motivated, if it's not, I'm a person who's already memorized these things and these are my friends already have memorized these things and therefore I get this right. But instead, these broader ideas and connected to these broader ideas about what could computer science be and why does computer science have to look this way or that way? Is that just sort of a, a social phenomena of like techno-libertarians? Or is this actually part of something valuable that people might be able to use out of computer science? Um, we see uh, very different uh, uh, stuff. So the idea is assessing computational literacy through um, this open creative play. So I mean, to be honest, this one's still in a preliminary results space um, that Unfortunately, scaling is hard at every perceptible level. Um, so the idea is this the, will theoretically go to all uh, 125,000 eighth graders in New York. Is that the right number? I don't know, ish. So all 125,000 public middle schoolers in New York, which would be great. Turns out that's really, really hard. Um, and uh, um, that enabling creative open spaces for assessments is also uh, a real trick that we are uh, still working through. But the, the nice part is that watching kids work through these problems, it makes it very apparent um, to the teachers 
uh, it reframes computer science as this sort of creative discipline. And that is something we're, we're seeing, even if we haven't quite nailed exactly how to get the assessment aspects uh, perfectly right uh, out of this yet. So uh, the last one, how am I doing on time? Doing OK? Yeah. Can, oh, yeah. Can I ask a question about the last one? Oh, That's a fantastic question. And the answer is, it really varies. It is not set in stone yet. Um, and it seems like it depends more on who you are as a teacher than who, than we don't have a, a single thing we give to teachers yet. We've mostly been working with them individually so far. We have a group in uh, Palo Alto we're working with. We've got a group in the Bronx, a group in Brooklyn. Um, of teachers, it's not fully out yet. And we've mostly been talking to them and helping them see what their students do and don't know. The, per, the, the, the short answer is, it seems like all the teachers really enjoy watching their kids play the game and feel like they're getting some assessment understanding and some understanding of what computer science is and can be from the game. We haven't really situated it very consistently. Um, does, that, does that answer your question? does seem like if we're going to scale to like 100,000 people, we're really going to need to nail that one. So if you have ideas, I would love to hear them. Um, any other questions or thoughts or concerns, feelings? Yeah. Kind of related to assessment, but it's related more to the, to the feedback that you asked students mm. in the previous project. So in that one, you were sort of assessing something about them so that we can give them a prompt with mm -hmm. questions, right? I'm curious what sort of questions you gave them. Like, was there any sort of things to get them to think about, like, metacognitively about things, or was it more about that? No, I mean, so again, it's a funny thing of an assessment game versus a learning game, right? Like, so we're not expecting that when they're done playing this, they've learned more about data science. This happens at the end of the data science segment, theoretically, that they've had in their computer science time in, in eighth grade. Um, and so part of what the feedback we were hesitant to give too much feedback to the students um, in the sense that it becomes less of an assessment game and more of a learning game if we give them lots, maybe, um, if we give them lots of feedback. That said, I, you know, at least one of the teachers has afterwards asked for extensive reflections on the relationship between the game and computer science. And I think that that's not going to be un, an unlikely result um, uh, for that kind of thing. And there are definitely, we have that one of the groups is SRI, and the SRI team has worksheets that they give out to the teachers, some of which include uh, that kind of material. Does that answer your question? I guess my question was more about the, the previous project that we showed. Oh, OK. Which seemed to give like that, that one. Yeah. So those seem to be like very uh, targeted questions mm. that you're giving based on some sort of model that we have with our participants. Sure. And so I was wondering what kind of questions those are. Are they like high-level questions or low-level skills-based things? I'm just wondering what sort of questions you have that are being asked, because I can't see that. Yeah, you just said, what, what are the questions? Oh, like literally, what are these? The prompts, yeah. Oh, what are the prompts? I see. Uh, prompts, yeah. What are other prompts? Um, yeah, I, I think I ran through like the majority of the kinds of prompts. There's ones that are like connect with other people at the table kinds of prompts. There are ones that are what's going on here? Can you describe it for me kinds of prompts? Pashish, what else we got? 
Social and persistent, yeah. Exploration, I think. Oh, yeah, there's also, right, there's also a bunch of exploration prompts. And we don't ask them to like reflect on their time, partially because, you know, museums are a weird space. And so you can get people to persist in something frustrating that's also enjoyable like this. But the moment you transition to asking them to sort of step aside and have an interview kind of experience, or, or even to have the interview kind of experience live, they'll probably just walk away unless you get them to sign something and step to the side and this kind of thing. But these things are still in the realm of fun, right? Like, so in this case, like, oh, there's a gap there. What, gosh, what fish might fit in that? How do you think you could discover what kinds of gaps go there, right? That's still a thing that prompts further fun in the game. Um, does that make sense? Not sure it's the most satisfying answer. Other questions, feelings, concerns, issues, anger, sadness, fear, the dark side. Yes? But in these prompts, how are you dealing with the language? That's a good question. Um, we're, so part of the, the win here uh, is that we are, this is for the explainers, all of whom speak English, uh, all of whom speak English. Right? Some of them speak other languages as well. Some English is in their first language. Um, we only pretty much as a group spoke English among ourselves, and so we gave it to the explainers in English knowing that they, that's the language they typically communicate with um, each other and the, the group in. Um, but we leave it up to them to communicate and their expertise, and that's actually something they're very good at, right? Like, so that's a large part of their job is connecting with kids that they maybe can't communicate linguistically with. Yeah, or maybe they can in other languages. Is that about translating these type of prompts into actual, like, maybe images? Like, if there's a gap, make it more obvious, like, visually? So, or, like... For, for the, the light, explainers, or...? Like, if the bright light, brighter light gets a, a weird Oh, like, give them prompts on the screen like, in the game? Like, maybe... Yeah, but, I see, the, again, it's like, part of the benefit, actually, is in the explainer going and having that interhuman interaction that can be heard by other people at the table and seen by other people at the table. So if we had uh, prematurely optimized the prompts to happen on the table, which is technically possible, but we chose not to do, we would be taking, first of all, taking the explainers out of the equation and also making the experience worse. Because in the end, the thing we wanted was for them to communicate and connect around the material, not to get the best program in the end, because who cares, right? They just built a thing on a table in a museum. It'll be gone in five seconds. Does that make sense? Other, okay, move quickly. Um, so, okay, I'm gonna say only a couple things about this. I'm gonna show a couple more short bits of projects. Um, this one is about teaching computer science a little bit, different parts of computer science. So in this case, we wanted to talk about parallelism and concurrency. And these are, here's the great thing about a lot of computer science, is the big ideas are ideas you already totally understand. If you're like, two people are going to get milk right now, no one would be like, you're blowing my mind. They're gonna have to do it one at a time, and we're gonna have to do it in a, you're like, okay, yeah, I get it. Two people are separately going to get milk, right? Like, and you don't expect that they have to like be touching when they do it, right? There are all these ideas of parallelism and concurrency that map really well to ideas in computer science that people think are really complex ideas. And they do have complex aspects, but they're really human comprehensible, like real life comprehensible uh, ideas. And so in this game, um, you play these 
uh, you build these little um, helpers to help you build a beautiful garden or whatever you decide your goal is, but basically building beautiful gardens together. But there's what's called mutual exclusion, right? So if you've taken a little space, someone else can't have that space. And so you have to build your programs understanding that some of these spaces are restricted, some of these spaces you need to work with other people to open them up. Some of them can only be opened up one at a time. And these ideas of agent-based modeling and parallelism and concurrency uh, manifest really obviously. No one's like, I don't get it, right? You can know that someone has created a little area for themselves and now you can't access that area even if you want to um, because they've locked it in a mutex. Uh, and so the idea, if you, if it's not a surprise, I think, that this doesn't look like we usually teach concurrency and parallelism. Um, this is not a typical representation from computer science of concurrency and parallelism. And so that was part of the idea is like, how do we reframe these things to make them meaningful and creative and things that people will connect to each other? So what happens is you walk up and there's this big screen with this big glowing flashing pink garden that's being built. Oh, this is at the New York Hall of Science and Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley, California. Um, wonderful PIs, et cetera. And, um, and then there's two touch screens side by side where you build your garden helpers, where you help, where you ask your, your helpers to build things for you. You get a little parrot guy, person, a little hedgehog friend. Um, and you build these things with these, these ideas. And the idea is that you're building these different aspects and you're learning that a lot of the complex ideas in computer science, and there's a whole buildup all around it, a lot of these ideas from computer science actually are ideas you already understand, and you're learning how to connect them and what they mean in this context. That this idea of mutual exclusion, that these ideas of parallelism and concurrency map really well, uh, and what a state diagram is, these things map really well to things you already understand, and that you can, that two eight-year-olds can communicate perfectly well about these ideas that we consider complex computer science ideas, uh, um, and that they can learn how to use them in ways that are meaningful to them, yeah. Did you ever ask them to use the terms and formalize the definitions? We don't ever ask them to do much. Um, we, do have, we have a big setup where we have posters um, that connect these things. Um, but I think less for us is, part of it was another cheat, which is that all the kids in Berkeley public schools and all the kids in New York public schools get computer science at the ages that they'll typically be seeing in the museum. And so the hope is that they take this, and we're using similar representations that they might see in those classes. And so the hope is that they take what they're seeing here and take them to those classes. And we're seeing some of them able to use the language you know, that they have in these classes to describe. Does that make sense? Yes. But we don't name it. No. No, we're mostly interested in the ways that they're able to leverage the ideas and describe the ideas and use them in situ, right? Like, are we even getting there? Is this a crazy idea to say, hey, can random visitors to a museum totally connect good, with that? But, yeah, absolutely. I mean, given that, the situations you described, it would be interesting to... For sure. I would love to follow school groups home to the school and see how they were able to take it up in their, in their scratch work. So I think the real question, there's also this question of how can we show people that this is stuff they can understand and they can build identities and that computer science doesn't have to look like Vim. I use Vim, there's nothing wrong with Vim, but that doesn't have to be what computer science looks like. Computer science can look like this beautiful garden and computer science can be about this beautiful garden. Um, and that isn't just about, say, girls, um, but it can be. It can be about all the kids who are not seeing themselves in, uh, in Vim, right? 
Um, and so what, can, what role can these museums play in people sh in understanding that they're already connecting these ideas? And the ideas themselves are not the hard part, it's the connecting. Excuse me. Um, so we, oh wait, that, that one at top is wrong, right? I don't know which one that is. Um, but the, um, the parallel portals, like as in we are writing, well, we submitted and then retracted. We submitted and then retracted a paper, we'll resubmit soon, um, about uh, productive social configurations, right? So it turns out one of the things that's afforded by this, about this connection with the material, is that we see people in all sorts of different configurations, two people working together, one person teaching the other person, people bringing in other people to teach them, people bringing in kids younger than themselves or parents, and that th this creative work where you're connecting with these deeper ideas um, tends to foster these kinds of productive social configurations in really interesting ways. And so we have a paper that we are about to resubmit um, about product productive social configurations. Um, and we have found that, unsurprisingly, non-traditional CS aesthetics team to broaden the uh, participant pool. When you frame computer science and it doesn't look like Vim, people who don't already want things to look like Vim are OK. Uh, are more okay with it, um, and the, that um, museum games are actually great, right? So I mean, turns out when we first proposed this project, I have a few museum games. We got a feedback from the NSF that was like, no one wants to play museum games, and we were like, what? Do we have to write a paper that's like people do want to? <laughs> and the answer was yes, and so we've written some papers that no, that's crazy. In fact, we had this in the front room of the Lawrence Hall of Science, and we had to move it because we created a traffic jam because no one wanted to go into the museum because they wanted to play our game. And, and we were like, so that's good. Um, people do want to. Although, that should be a surprise to literally nobody who has played games ever or interacted with children. But evidently, sometimes you have to write that paper so that you can send it to the NSF and, and say, indeed, people do like playing games. It's good. Um, uh, all right, I'm going to skip this one. It has a similar thing. So, okay, I've shown you three different ways that I try that, that our group tried to create social spaces um, through collaboration and making to help kids build this creative agency to, to express themselves with things that were code in the end, things that were computation that enabled uh, expressive computation uh, and computational literacy. And, you know, across the different projects, we found that. Architecting the space and tools around the literacies, not the skills. We don't necessarily need them to be great C++ programmers when they leave our activities. We need them to feel connected to the material. The hope is, once you have those identities built up a little bit, um, the hope and belief, and actually the research shows, that once you have built up those, those identities, that the jump from being an OK programmer to being a good programmer, or being an OK computer science to being a good computer scientist, is much easier than the jump to the identity as feeling connected to the meaning of what is computer science or am I there, right? And so how do you build up those identities and not make them false, right? If you show everybody how to build, uh, how to, to, to make the scratch cat dance and then you're done after two lessons and you say you're all computer scientists now, then it's gonna be a real dejecting experience the next time they try and do literally anything else or the first time that you have them make a keychain and then you say do anything else and they can't. That actually is not a great way to, to place to stop and build the identity. The question is, 
how do you get that next step? How do you enable them to see the expressive nature and feel connected to it and understand that they can push through it and connected to their lived experience and create new shared experiences? Um, and so I think in the end, the idea is that uh, our, our work hopefully shows that you can build this creative agency, that you can build this expressive agency in lots of kids, in, in open spaces, in places where kids don't have to necessarily participate, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't, um, by enabling them to play and create games and play games, uh, play creative games with each other and, and leverage this creative play. So with that, I'm going to end and, and hopefully have a lively discussion that you didn't interrupt me uh, enough during the talk uh, for. So thank you so much. If anyone also, if anyone has any specific questions about other, I have some of the slides for some of the other end projects that we work on in the lab. If there's ones that you know that you would like me to go into depth on, yeah. I'm curious about the social structures that sort of happen around these mm. So we talked that you have this pending paper, but I'm wondering if the experiences are designed to sort of encourage certain types of social exchange. Absolutely. Yeah, that's in, in fact, that's a big part of, I think, what we do is thinking about how the, relation, the relationship between HCI and learning sciences and how we can use interfaces and tools to foster meaningful social experiences, right? Where meaningful social experiences means building and connecting with people in a deeper way around the material. So we do that very explicitly. Like One of the reasons we created that Rainbow Agents game, the museum game, the way we did it is because you have to interact in the process of that game with the other person who is there at the machine with you. And being a museum, there's always someone around, right? Um, you, you have to connect. In the various ways that people connect, we're seeing differences in the kinds of things they do based on how they're, right? So if you're busy teaching the other person how to do something, um, maybe you spend less time on your own, where if you're both working towards some common goal, uh, um, uh, you, have di you have different patterns, but you see the various ways that the discourse grows and the way that people are able to engage each other more deeply um, by engaging the space, the various spaces that you afford, right? Does that answer your question, or am I missed, have I missed? But I'm wondering if you actually like, force someone. Oh, yeah, so we have some forcing functions, for sure. Specific role or no specific thing. Yeah. No specific things is no, but in this particular game, there's a moment where um, when you get one of these rainbow mushrooms, um, it locks the game for a second. Uh, and both people have to work together to place, um, no, sorry, when you open a chest, both people have to work together to place a rainbow mushroom somewhere. And you have to, like you, it does not allow not to, right? It's the game locks and you have to do this thing, which can be a touch frustrating. Um, but the UI is pretty good, and people figure it out very quickly. Um, but we found, again, I'm, I've got my fact checker in the back. We found uh, that uh, people collaborated much more deeply after that forced moment, right? That just that one forced moment enabled a lot deeper collaboration there on out. Because now you've had this shared experience. Now, if we did that all the time, how annoying would that be? Every few seconds, you're like, oh, god. OK. <sighs> Bertrand, I think it should be up here now, right? OK. <sighs> right. But if you do it every once in a while, and especially after people have been playing for a bit, um, then there's now this one moment where you link up. And that's the only thing we force. 
but you, you see, again, this, this collaboration starts to sort of take off. And the number of social configurations goes up, right? Rather than two people sort of working in parallel. Now, maybe they're working parallel. Maybe they're working together. Maybe they brought in other people to teach them. Does that? Yeah. Thank yeah. You. yeah. I'm curious about the assessment game that you were talking mm -hmm. before. Uh, whether, so once do students know they're being assessed, yeah. how much does that influence their, how, how they play the game? They don't care. We, we tell, I mean, we tell them it's an assessment game, but it's not giving data at the level of the student. That's important. You can't be graded. There's no way to make the thing that they do into a grade. Part of the way, part of the reason is that this is an open game, and so you could actually avoid any assessment experiences if you're being really working really hard at it. Um, and that would be a success. Yeah, in a way, right? Like it's fine for us. Um, and, and I think that's good because now we can say credibly to the teachers, you can't use this to grade. You don't have any information on like half of the kids. Well, it wouldn't be half, but like you don't have any information on all this huge chunk of kids. So are you going to give them an F just because they played a different way? That's crazy. You can't do that. Um, and so instead we say, hey, it seems like your class does get this idea. It seems like your class isn't quite getting this idea. And we don't have really enough data to say if they're getting this other idea. So I would say this is not exactly a stealth assessment because part of what we are doing is making it open enough that we don't guarantee we will get data towards those stealth assessment criteria, um, which makes it something different, right? And, and um, it also means that it doesn't affect their behavior much. So if you know you're in a stealth assessment SimCity, right, which is one of the stealth assessments that, that, that Val has worked on, right, um, you're going to play SimCity in a way that you want to make sure you get a good grade. Right, and it's SimCity, but it's like you still have to, it's still a test. This is not a test. No one is testing you, right? This is an assessment, but it is not a test. Because if you decide to just, we definitely, we had at least a few kids at the last classroom in Palo Alto who, who literally like just kept on like releasing songs until they had built up money without doing anything else in the game and like never hit an assessment event of any kind because they were just like releasing as fast as they could like click 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 right and they released like a thousand songs and if you release enough songs you can make money eventually even if you're only making a little bit of money per song and um and so they didn't, yeah, again, they didn't get any assessment games. And that's fine. We tell the teacher, we just don't report that that kid did or didn't know anything. We just don't, we just have a big question mark there, I think, in the last version of the data. And so, no, yeah, and so they're not playing to win. But we do tell them this will help the teacher understand what they, they know. But it's actually, if they can figure out, here's the other sort of flip side, if they can figure out what the assessment events are in the game, good for them, right? It means they probably get it. Um, whether they strenuously avoid or not. Questions? So I want to um, at least challenge the idea that oh, something is an assessment game and not a learning game. Sure. And that um, you're giving them new metaphors to think about this stuff. Absolutely. They're engaging with this. They're obviously going deeper on some of the computational thinking because they're working. No doubt. Metaphors. Yeah, it's hard because I mean, I honestly believe that all things are, that like learning is everywhere, right? It's, you're never not learning. Yeah. When are you not learning? Um, but I think, uh, how about the, the learning goal for this game is diffuse? How's that? 
it would not be an effective way in itself to teach something without extensive um, situating. Um, although you absolutely can use, I mean, you can use anything. Right? I could probably use this ginger ale bottle to teach math, but um, the question is, what does it afford most effectively? In this case, the hope is that it, you know, I do think that affords new metaphors is good. Part of the thing we're doing, again, this is not us imposing, this is being asked for, is teaching the teachers what is computer science um, and showing them that this is computer science. Because a lot of the people who are teaching computer science classes, again, have no experience at all. Again, that's not a diss on them. They're, they're wonderful. And I, again, it seems inhumane to expect every teacher in New York to know what computer science is. We don't expect them all to like do math or know the history of you know, literature, right? We, you can't expect them all to know everything. Um, but it, we want to frame computer science as something different. And so that's a learning experience, hopefully, for the students and the teacher, that this is computer science. Yeah. Other concerns, feeling, yeah. So you mentioned this about the New York school system. And you also mentioned that some of this is being tested elsewhere, such as in Palo Alto. Are you finding differences between those two environments? Or yeah, how, how do those compare? No, not yet. I'm going to say not yet. I think the answer is we've mostly been testing in public, relatively low-resourced public schools in both places um, where computer science has not been taught a lot in the past. And so we're seeing more similarities on those axes, which, again, is not surprising or bad. Um, but I think we see more similarities across those axes. I guarantee if we took this to like Stuyvesant, um, if people know what Stuyvesant is, um, we would have a very different experience. But it would be, uh, that's a fancy magnet uh, school um, that feeds MIT uh, in, uh, <laughs> in New York City. Um, uh, the experience would be very different. Um, but we, that's not where we've been putting our work. And so we haven't really seen categorical differences that I, that we have found yet. Although we have, as you might suspect, for all of these projects, we have all of the logs of everything everybody does in the game. Um, and so the question is, sometimes it's like in the case of the, um, the museum games, it's anonymous, right? I mean, that you can't guess who the person is based on how they built a program. If you can, you win a separate, no, don't tell Palantir. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, uh, in the case of this, obviously, the data goes to the teacher. Um, so there's a lot of data to still work through. And maybe we'll see some fundamental difference between the ways they're interacting. Other thoughts, questions? People feel like I nailed it. Yeah. Um, as far as like museum games specifically, like it seems like museums are kind of like an interesting environment because you don't necessarily have people coming in like regularly. And like they don't necessarily always have like a really long time. To mm. play these kind of games. So, how does that change, kind of like either like the learning goals that you're trying to accomplish in that specific game, or just kind of like the design aspects of the game? Yeah, that's a great question. So, we think a lot about how you design for public spaces and how you design for museums, and if it means learning. I uh, I had a long debate with Leona Schauble at GLS like five years ago. She was like, "None of this is learning. Learning takes place over two years," and I was like. And I was like, two years? What about like seven minutes? Um, and uh, I think both are true, right? So like the, 
you know, the average, the term they use in museums is dwell time, right? So like how long does a person stop at, a, uh, at an exhibit and think about it? And the dwell time for an exhibit might be 20 seconds on average. Obviously the dwell time for a game, like, you know, I don't know what the last stat we have, but I'm gonna say it's like 12 minutes on average for this. Because people come and they wanna like play, play the game. Right? You can't play a game like this. It's complex. It's got lots of things that it's doing. You can't come for seven seconds and just like, and then run away. Um, even in the case where the explainers were teaching people how to do it, the dwell time would be like five minutes. Right? So it's a lot longer than that. But it's true. You can't have a learning goal like, can successfully write Tetris in C++ um, in seven minutes. That, that, would like, that would not be a great learning goal. The learning goals, I think, for us, um, and one of the reasons that we spend time in museums are social and collaborative, right? Can we get people to communicate these ideas to each other and to create stuff with each other to sort of spark those, that identity building, um, which is one thing that museums are really good at, right? So one thing museums like to point out is that people always uh, think back to their museum experiences when they reflect on becoming the profession that they are, right? This is a, for lots of professions, um, even ones that don't feel particularly connected to museums, People often say, oh, I remember going to the American Museum of Natural History as a child, and that's why I'm a lawyer. You're like, all right, sure. Um, and so um, our hope is that if we can spark that sort of identity building, those identity building moments that, that uh, a lot of museum and public space experiences hinge on, um, that we can, we can do some good there uh, uh, with, with the work that we do. But absolutely, yeah, there are lots of learning goals that are, just don't fit very well in museums, um, for, for, for sure. Or lots of public spaces where you might not spend so much time, yeah. If your goal is to achieve these like, identity moments, how do you like, evaluate them for a certain actors being in New York? So the way that we do that is watching what they say. So it turns out humans don't have any idea of what, we, what our identities, how our identities are forming or what we understand. Like just period. This is maybe a controversial statement or maybe not. Depends on who's the learning scientist in the room. Um, we have no idea what we know. We have 0% in, intuition about what we truly understand. Um, uh, that said, so asking them, did you, do you feel more identified as a computer scientist now? The answer, depending on how you've asked the question, will be 100% yes or 100% no. But either way, it doesn't really matter. Um, no offense to people who do that. Um, the, uh, the answer is if they are able to really take up these ideas and communicate with them, that's an identity event for us, right? Like the moment where you have taken on the role in the game, right? This is something games are really good at is giving you sort of local sets of values. If you can take on the role in the game, which requires this communication, if you could take up those values and communicate with those values, that is an identity event. How much that sticks a few weeks later, that's hard to measure. Um, the hope is that it does. Um, definitely people come back. Uh, people enjoy themselves, but we'll do lots of things. Um, those things are measurable on Leona Shovel timelines, unfortunately, not, not us. But they, they, the, I think the belief um, that we have best, backed up by theory and ev other evidence about how m museums work is that those things are, are substantive. Does that make sense? It's a little, it's a little wishy-washy, but I think it, I think it works. Maybe not. I'm open to the idea that it doesn't. Are there any like initiatives to track people outside of the museum and sort of ping them later and ask them things? 
Sure, but again, we're going to have the same problem, which is that when you prompt people by asking them things about what, you're, what you've done in the museum, um, that they will remember them. So we have some of that. We had some of that in the New York Hall of Science. They were tracking people a little bit um, through memberships, like when they would come in a membership, and they would ask you, hey, did you enjoy the Oztok exhibit? Um, what did you do? What happened there? Um, and people would be like, yeah, it was great. I had fun. What about something like they play it, this game for n minutes, and that at the end of that time they get a URL to go and play it at home or not? So but they did that. I was on a project at the Minnesota Historical Society where they did that. Jen Sly, who's, who's a wonder over there, if you know, you know Jen. Um, uh, and they, uh, they did that. It turns out it was just the rich kids who would respond. And it's not because only the rich kids were having really great experiences. It was because the rich kids were the ones who had phones and would get the email and would do the thing. And so if you really want, you, you find out the rich kids will log in and be like, yeah, I had a great time. So we come back to the between school and Yeah. It's worth pointing out, I mean, that, you know, virtually all the work those of us who do stuff in informal education get this question, how are you going For to sure. I, not to be flip, but they've never really established that reading Shakespeare does anything in particular. There's no <laughs> test, you know, that show, other than that you remember some lines from Hamlet, there's no test that says that having read Shakespeare has actually had an effect on your life. I mean, we just take it, we sort of think we know it from experience more than yeah, I think, let me go one step further, though. I think that there are things, so we know for a fact that if something is just in short-term memory, it's gone within a few days, right? So like the study, the test that you studied for, um, uh, that you crammed for, five days later is gone, right? No one wants to take the test again five days later. You would do terribly, right? Because that stuff's all gone. Um, so who cares? The thing that persists is when you have new understandings, when there's been some expectation violation. This is like the history of learning sciences. We know this. If you are coming to new understandings through communicating and what you're doing, if you're literally building something, I mean, part of what we haven't gotten across, what I haven't gotten across in this is that you're literally like writing code. You're building this finite state machine. You're doing something you have not done before, probably in your computer science class. If you were able to make that jump, there is some new understanding, some new maps that you've built. That kind of expectation violation sticks around so much more than memorization for a test, consistently. Historically, we have reams of evidence starting in the 70s from here um, that that is just true. That is the points that stick around so much more than memorizing Shakespeare. Deeply understanding Shakespeare, yeah, that stuff sticks around. Memorizing Shakespeare, memorizing things for a test, that stuff's gone. Does that make sense? I don't know if they, yeah. Mm -hmm. like, and you're using the data from the, the program, but have you thought about maybe some like ethnography or some participatory observation? Oh, yeah, yeah, we do that. Okay, and, and, and do you get, like, do they match the results from your... Do they match? Do they like, do you, like, you get do the data to show, like, social interactions qualitatively? When you also see oh, yeah, 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 of course, for sure. Oh, yeah, no, so a lot of the social interactions are, we're, we're actually, are, sorry, I didn't do a good job of describing the situation here. So at the Lawrence Hall of Science, there's literally two researchers standing there 
with notepads and microphones um, who are evaluating what's happening at the table and watching how these social interactions grow and then evaluating like the, the quality of the social. Right? We're not just looking at the laws logs. We map the quantitative stuff with the qualitative stuff in all of the different projects. Um, apologies, I, I didn't make that clear. So we have uh, this one. This picture is actually the New York Hall of Science. New York Hall of Science, we have someone on staff or on the project who's on staff who goes and opens up the room and, and sits there with it every once in a while. And, um, and the, the Lawrence Hall of Science, there's someone there a lot um, just sort of looking at these connections and watching, if, watching how people uh, um, um, create these meaningful connections around the material. And they do. And again, that's not a surprise, really. I mean, if you give people a fun game, this isn't going to come as a shock to you if you've ever played like, I'm just going to come with one off the head. If you've ever played like FIFA soccer sitting next to someone, right? Like you come to understand something new as you play. Um, by coordinating with them, that's not a shocker. No one's going to be like, no, right? It's, it has to happen, right? Because you want to play the game um, with them. The question is, when can you make that happen around these, these other ideas that build these identities that are connected to school or that you might not otherwise have? Right? Does that make sense? But yes, it's absolutely it's qualitative and qualitative. It's for sure. It's mixed methods, all of it. Yeah. Oh, this is great because I'm going to like channel my, my wife. Um, so my wife is Lima Berland. Um, she's uh, an associate professor at UW-Madison and ran the uh, uh, um, science education. I'm going to deny this time. No, nope, I'm going to allow. OK. Um, uh, and um, she has a bunch of different papers on this that we use in our work, I think, through when we, when we work on this stuff. And one of the things that she's most well known for is she has work on scientific argumentation, which is that scientific argument is terrible in general um, in classrooms, right? So it turns out people would just argue with each other. And for a while, we were like, this is great. It's like scientists. And we're like, no, because they don't change their mind. And also, this is terrible. You're just having kids argue. Um, and so her work, allow, maybe? Um, I feel like it's a new, which depends. Test. It's a test. <laughs> I'm failing. Um, so they have to have some reason to change, to want to change their mind, or some reason to take up new information in order for that information to be meaningful to them. And they have to have identities which enable them, or values which, in, you know, sort of local to the activity values which enable them to, to feel connected to this material. All kids can do that about all subjects. The question is, can you create activities and social spaces where that stuff is valued? Um, and so this is, again, a cheat with games. So games create these spaces of social value. If you create the game in which the social value is created by meaningful dialogue, people will have meaningful dialogue. right? The, and so that's a good chunk of, I think, what we're trying to do here is figure out what about design can create spaces where people are valued for taking on these identities, for taking on these meaningful forms of communication. And it's by 
in part, it's by creating these new experiences that connect to things that they care about that don't look like the content material necessarily, but have connections to it. And in part, it's about giving things like these prompts where they have to communicate or have to engage with other people around the material. Does that make sense? Yeah, Josh. Um, as a follow-up, and it's not direct, it's related to what you just described, not directly to the work you talked about. Mm. Um, what if they, you have the system that values the um, dialogue, you know, positive dialogue. Um, and the, so you have, you know, this modeling model that within which the game play happens. You have one um, level hmm. where it's required that you have dialogue to succeed. Um, what about if you go to another level where different values score card, or you know, the scoring artifact, does the dialogue persist? We actually have an answer to that question. The answer is no, um, right? So the more that you um, motivate pure performance over the engagement and exploration in the space, the worse the dialogue gets. So when an earlier ver- I, say, I mean, you don't explicitly, dialogue may be a second order, or a second, is not, I'm not sure. I, well, let me answer the question I thought you were asking, because I think it's relevant, and then I'll stop. Um, but the, the, the short answer is, we found lots of different ways to shortcut or short circuit the dialogue um, accidentally through our experimentation. And one of them was to give too much value to score. Um, because Maybe you'd better, yeah, I have to formulate a better response. Mm, um, that really short circuited a lot of the good stuff. Um, yeah. You also didn't have that list. <laughs> list of things that short circuit good dialogue. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah maybe you should write that Although paper. Although it's interesting because it, it, it sort of, it, it's I good. would argue that it's not just the score. It's, it's not just the score. score and the structure because you look at, I mean, there's all this literature, say, around World of Warcraft where clearly there's rich scientific dialogue and argumentation mm -hmm. because it is enhancing people's score. So in other right. words, they, people engage in that because uh, it makes them better players. Mm -hmm. So it, I think it's as much about the structure, the structure of right. It's, it's, it's all multifactorial, right? Like it's not just score ruins everything. It's score in the absence of structures that enable you to um, not be competing with the people that you're communicating right. around the score. Um, yeah. 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 I just I distracted the conversation by saying score card rather than go. You know, Model of success, or you know, how they perceive, you know, feel better about uh, exploring the system. Like, did, have we played with different models of success in the games? Is well, the one that absolutely requires dialogue, and one that does not require dialogue as much. Yeah, and we have we. So that was one of the other. Yeah, so, so we actually have some data on that, too. One of the different factors in the, the OzTalk, um, I've, got, I've got so much information on this. This is a, I feel like you're a shill. Um, but there was a version of this where each different um, one of these had its own collection table. It wasn't competing, right, right? So it was just, it wasn't like everybody, like if you got one, someone else didn't. It was just that there were four different sort of collection cards. And the quality of the interactions were f far worse. 
um, partially because it didn't require them to think through together what they would like to identify. Right? And just all of these different, again, the game wasn't actually any different. You were collecting four red squiggly things instead of one. Th that didn't really matter, right? Because these things sort of float away after a while anyway. It was really the fact that this shared representation gave them a sense that they were in it together. Um, and, to, and it gave them another point of communication. We're always thinking, in our design, we're always thinking about finding those points of communication, finding those points of discussion and uh, meaningful engagement that people can discuss things about, right? And there's a reason that the Rainbow Agents activity was about um, mutual exclusion, right? Because it's about these moments where the interaction is, has to happen, where you need something and someone else has it, um, and now you have to communicate. Right? It's always about finding these points of communication that aren't frustrating or competing. Um, it's not a competing situation. Um, it's more of a meaningful interaction situation that you've created. Uh, and so always, always trying to find that. Um, I, you know, in this other project I didn't present, they're playing robot soccer. Um, uh, but in this case, the, a lot, so much of the dialogue was on, so much of the discourse was on, okay, you be the goalie, I'll be the, uh, this is from a long time ago. Uh, the, you be the goalie, I'll be the striker, right? And giving them these points of interaction, they would communicate a lot within their teams, and they wouldn't communicate at all with the enemy team, right? And this happens a lot in robot soccer. But, it's, but then we'd mix up the teams, and now they're all diff different groups, and it's, it's really easy to do. But the ways that they find these points of interaction, none of them were good enough at programming to actually be the striker or the goalie 90% of the time. It was just that they sort of had to take on these identities uh, for communication. Um, OK, I think, should I be wrapping up? I should yeah, I have one more question otherwise. One more question. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so currently at the Lawrence, so the museum game, you'd have to have the exhibit. Um, so that's hard to give you, uh, the museum games. But uh, the play.beatsempire.org um, is, you all can all go play, and we're going to take your data. So if, play with a, uh, uh, a throwaway Google account if you don't want the city of New York to be able to see what you've done. Um, uh, or at least Vishesh and I. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, and then, let me think. iPro used to be on the App Store. Do we have any, what other things do we have on the App Store? Is Caravan on the App Store? No. No, not right now. What about the programming parallel threaded game? Yeah, that's, that's uh, sorry, that's at um, the Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley, California, and the New York Hall of Science in, in Queens. Um, it's currently actively up. So if you go to Queen, well, what's that? Does it require special hardware? Or is oh, yes. Yeah. It so it's got these two screens um, and, uh, and, uh, and then a big screen. It's not that much special hardware. It's like 500 bucks worth of special hardware, but it is special hardware. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. But yeah, you can go play that in Queens. It's not that far away. Just take the train. Um, uh, all right, thank you so much. Thank you.